Thanks for joining me today uh, for this interview, Stephanie. Um, I am absolutely fascinated with what you're doing. Um, you know, my background is also neuro-related. I'm a neuroradiologist. And, you know, my job is day, day in, day out. I see the, the, the receiving end of diseases. Um, and a lot of these are devastating, like stroke, um, neurodegenerative disease. Um, frankly, we, we don't really have a lot of solution for it. So I'm fascinated with what you're doing. But let me just, I want to explore a little bit your journey uh, along your career. Um, you're very young for being a full professor. Um, and your you know, academic career is absolutely very impressive. How did you decide now, first of all, you want to uh, do, you want to focus on neuroscience, and then you want to print essentially a brain? Yeah, um, well, I was one of those kids uh, who always, you know, I think I asked for a chemistry set when I was five. I was always really into science. My um, high school thesis was on stem cells and dating myself, it was cloning Dolly the sheep. And uh, when I was an undergrad, I worked in a bioengineering lab. Um, at MIT, at the time, you could only major in uh, biology and chemical engineering. There wasn't bioengineering yet, so I, I did the double. And then my grad work, uh, I rotated in Shelly Sakiyama Elbert's lab, where she was engineering neural tissue, and I just thought it was really cool. Um, I guess some of the more mature tissues that people transplant, I think more regular things like bone, but it's very static. Um, whereas with uh, the brain, you have tons of different types of cells, lots of different signaling, um, both uh, electrical properties and mechanical properties. So it was just like a lot to explore. And then during my uh, PhD was also when um, I was actually at the Toronto ISSCR meeting where uh, Yamanaka gave the talk describing iPSCs. Uh, mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, this should be a really, really big deal. And it was a really, really big deal. So. So tell us a little bit about the IPSC, uh, because I don't think everyone knows what that is and why is it so amazing? Yeah, so um, IPSCs are induced pluripotent stem cells. And so, um, again, dating myself a bit, um, when I was in graduate school, uh, the use of embryonic stem cells was controversial for, for a number of reasons. But the reason people were very excited about embryonic stem cells are these cells um, can become any cell type found in the body. So in theory, you could replace any tissue. Um, they're sourced from uh, human embryos, which is why there was a bit of a controversy around them. Uh, and so then uh, with the invention of these iPSCs, instead of deriving these cells that can become any cell type from an embryo, they actually can do it from a skin cell. And then now um, with the project we're working on, they actually do blood draws from the patients that my collaborator, Dr. Nygaard sees in the clinic. You can do a blood draw, you treat these cells with certain factors and they go back to essentially your blood cell becomes a cell that can actually form tissues like you find in the brain or spinal cord or skin. And mm -hmm. we mainly focus for the, the bioprinting stuff, we've been mainly focused on neurodegenerative disorders. And uh, the one interesting thing about the iPSCs for neurodegenerative disorders, which um, Dr. Nygaard's group, I think has just published some nice papers on, is you actually, um, if you take these cells from your Alzheimer's patient and grow them in a dish, and you age them, they actually get more Alzheimer's over time. You actually can track that. So it's really, that's really um, amazing because I've been thinking about that lately um, about the time factor um, in biology. And I, I don't even know if we have had any models to simulate time to age something faster. You know, let's say something like neurodegenerative process takes five, 10, 20 years. How do you simulate that in the lab? I think that that could be a potential breakthrough for yeah. 
Yes, it's really interesting because as you grow the cells, um, like they'll secrete more tau and amyloid beta protein and you can measure them using assays. And so um, the idea was uh, we could, first of all, grow them in 3D. Uh, another interesting thing about some of the modeling, just because of how um, the fields developed, uh, a lot of the protocols have been really focused on making like one specific type of neuron from these cells, but not modeling multiple cells like you'd have in the brain. So you'd need your neurons, your oligodendrocytes, astrocytes. Um, and so there really hasn't been many good co-culture models. And, and Dr. Nygaard's group has done some, some lovely work um, where they've actually been pairing healthy with diseased iPSC derived like neurons with astrocytes and seeing how they modulate each other in, in terms mm -hmm. of measuring disease phenotype. So, um, yeah, that sounds like a worthwhile reading. I'd be happy to post the link of the article as well after this. Um, but I know you guys just published a paper focusing on GBM, uh, which believe it or not, I did some research from the radiology side when I was in uh, MGH, also on GBM um, from Im imaging perspective. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that study that you just published? Um, yeah, I think, was that our materials today chemistry paper? Yes, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we've got another one that's really exciting that I'm uh, editing right now that we're hoping Good. to submit. Um, granted, all the work was done uh, pre-corona, but... Um, yeah, so with the, the cancer work, again, it's really interesting. And there's this whole idea of, you know, the tumor microenvironment, 2D versus 3D. And what we found is um, when you culture the uh, glioblastoma in, in 3D, they become more tumorigenic. Um, they do form these steroids inside of our 3D printed constructs. And the idea of that is to use that as a tool for drug screening. That's some of our unpublished work that we've been, been working on. But it's a lot harder to break up a tumor in 3D than it is in 2D. It's very easy to, well, not easy, but um, lots of things work when you're trying to uh, kill your cancer cells when you culture them on 2D monolayers. And then when you actually have them as physical steroids, it's much harder to break down the structure. But in, in GBM, as you know, it's super invasive super proliferative cancer. So you're really dealing with, with these cancer masses. So um, essentially using 3D bioprinting gives you a way to make something more that will mimic what's gonna actually happen in your body um, mm -hmm. compared to other techniques. So uh, right now it sounds like where you are in, in terms of this GBM model is you've created the structure. Now it actually is a real tumor-like structure, but have you guys gone through uh, the actual drug screening testing and then see uh, if this actually works? Yeah, so that's, that's our, uh, un, our unpublished paper, um, which I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to talk about. But yeah, we have um, uh, done, we've, we've uh, been working with a, a, a company based out of Montreal who has some experimental therapeutics um, to, to show like what happens when you, you know, treat these 3D printed tumors with these drugs and we can quantify tumor size. And um, we actually have uh, fluorescently labeled GBMs too, so we can actually track over time. So you can just watch the fluorescence decrease as the tumor cells die. Uh, yeah, that, that, that paper should be really exciting. And uh, yeah. it's also uh, really interesting because we took the model to a, another step. So we not only have tumor cells in the model, we also have um, healthy neural tissue too. So mm -hmm. you can sort of see the effect of the tumors on um, the healthy tissue. And again, if you're trying to treat GBM, ideally your therapeutic would just target cancer and not healthy cells, which is why I think a lot of people know in cancer, a lot of chemo has very bad side effects because it's also targeting your healthy cells too and having. Yeah, I shared your paper with one of my, uh, my neurosurgical team that I work with. They're super excited about this. Um, currently, you know, for patients that I deal with, they use animal models. Um, so basically they implant the tumors onto mice, um, which obviously is not the most efficient process of screening drugs. Um, and also 
you know, bioprinting itself can have so many controls. You can create so many different structures at your will. It just, you can really do a lot of things from a drug discovery and screening um, perspective. So I know that you did a lot of work in Alzheimer, Parkinson models, and as well as now tumor models. And most of these models are for drug screening purposes. Um, are there any intention of creating some kind of tissue, you know, that can be implanted to repair people who are got, you know, already got stroke or spinal cord got resected, that kind of thing? Yeah, um, it's sort of uh, interesting what goes to clinical trials. I think Lorenz Studer's group is taking um, dopaminergic neurons for Parkinson's. I think he's going to be doing transplantation uh, either this year or next year. Uh, who bought Daron? I can't remember. They uh, Asteris, is that right? Who does the spinal cord injury cell transplantation with um, embryonic stem cell-derived oligodendrocytes. Uh, there was a couple of cell therapies for spinal cord injury which showed promise, but um, one of the big issues with that is cost. So I think in the Jaron Asteris trial, I think all the patients, it was like something like $8 million a patient, just like really, really expensive. So when, so even when um, you see some positive effects, like getting things like that adopted as standard of care is very hard. So um, from our perspective, um, it's sort of interesting because with the bioprinting, we've been able to shift a bit. Uh, previously, when I first started my lab, a lot of our work with the iPSCs was more towards cellular therapy. So it was always like, don't have any animal proteins, um, just being like really careful about a lot of the stuff to make sure everything was defined. Um, we have been though playing with other things now um, as per drug screening, because uh, now um, we aren't necessarily limited. Um, essentially, you can add different molecules and things and animal derived products to your bio inks to get better survival because we aren't going to actually be putting them in humans. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. They just sort of inform each other, right? Like we looked at the protocols that make, you know, purified populations of neurons. Um, and obviously the work we do can also inform, you know, how to differentiate and things like that. So sort of the two different sides of the coin. Also, I think I'm um, just with the drug screening stuff with the patient HIPSCs. Um, for example, because um, our collaborator, Dr. Nygaard, is a doctor, if we were to see a drug that would work in our model, um, he could potentially prescribe it back to his patients. And so uh, just and also, I think just from a regulatory standpoint, it's a lot easier to get a drug approved than it is to get a cell therapy approved. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, the economics makes sense. It's probably a lot more cheaper to do drug screening using bioprinting than printing a piece of brain tissue or spinal cord for implant. Well, you know, there's like a whole group of uh, ethicists, especially with the organoids. Um, because you can recapitulate, and it's really cool, we've done it in our lab, we just haven't published it. Um, or you use the intrinsic power of your pluripotent stem cells, and you can grow these mini brains, and you, you put them on shakers and things like that, and they really do replicate the different structures found in the, the brain. But there's a group of ethicists that are concerned about like how large you should make them, and if you, would, if you actually create these engineered brain tissues, are they thinking, and how would you know if your tissues were creating thought? Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think the bioethics side is a whole brand new world that people never thought about stuff. Like even coming down to, um, you know, how do you control the stem cells to make sure that the stem cells are going, you know, are absolutely turning into the kind of cells that you want to induce them to. That is, I'm not sure how accurate we are at all times. So if we're going to do it in human body, there, there's going to be potential issues. You don't want to grow an arm out of, you know, your chest or something like that. All right. Well, the the, main, the big concern for a long time was um, you'd get tumors, like you'd get yeah. one of these cells be tumor. <laughs> exactly. 
but yeah, the, the mini brains and the, the ethics is very uh, interesting. And it's uh, interesting to talk to my colleagues about it. It's like my favorite thing to do when we have drinks is to ask people like, do you think we're actually creating like thought in a dish? Because some people are just like, nope, like everyone's oversold, overhyped these, these tissues. Uh, they aren't really re recreating brain function. And then um, there have definitely been certain groups that have been calling like, you shouldn't grow tissues over a certain size and um, things like that. So. Or making a robot that looks like human. <laughs> I mean, um, these these uh, discussions, I find them very uh, fascinating and entertaining and also necessary in humanity. Um, without them, we're probably not going to have computers and we're not going to be here doing video conferencing. I think the human imagination is, has created a lot of positive things for us. So I, I don't mind of talking about, I love talking about them as well. But definitely there are some scary features that you could potentially you know, for see like my background here, <laughs> Westworld. Yeah, I'm always like, well, Westworld, that's not how you would print a horse, but anyway. Um, no, yeah. Well, that's also coming from 1970s. Um, the, the, the whole book was written decades ago, so yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and I definitely know that there's some, some issues that arise, especially when you're doing some of the brain work um, where they're transplanting human cells, human brain cells into mice brains and things when you're we're doing some of the chimera stuff. You see. Yeah, or vice versa. Yeah, like for the xenotransplant, right? That's like huge um, discussion. Many decades ago, there was this, I, I, think, I hope I'm remembering this right, there was a kid who got a, uh, a porcine heart because she, she was gonna die uh, if she doesn't have a heart. Her heart is, has defects. Um, so she, I think she survived a couple more days but that's generated a lot of discussions behind it. And definitely this is fascinating. I think I can talk a lot about it and love to hear about it too. Um, yeah. But let's go back to science a little bit more. Um, you know, in your written interview, you, you're saying one of the challenges that you, you want to be able to predict the structures that you guys are going to print. And, and I think part of that maybe is because also we have lack of material science knowledge in a lot of these new materials that you guys are creating as well. Is that something? Yeah, well, I think it's just because 3D printing, especially for the tissues, is one, new. Um, two, it's so interdisciplinary that usually you're getting, um, like, for example, I, I work with Aspect Biosystems a lot. I know you're familiar with them. Yeah. Uh, spun out of, you know, Conrad's group that's electrical engineers. And uh, so they, like, took that perspective when, when making it. And so then you need to also bring in, like, some of your materials people. And then also just because the field is so new, um, like, there's not really a standard of how you quantify the different properties of your bio ink. Um, and so for us, you know, we're like, okay, this is the speed and then this is what it prints. Um, and then there's just a lot because of the material properties and how the materials interact and, and just even depending on the type of printing. Um, it's really a trial error process is like, can we print this structure? Can we put these uh, different cell types where we want? Um, and then just a lot of validation, but uh, the technology is definitely advancing quite rapidly, so. Yeah, I mean, I, I know like for metal, 3D printing and stuff like that, you have simulation software that can predict what the mechanical properties are. Um, I wonder how soon can we have that in bioprinting? Yeah, well, that's, I know um, one of my colleagues, Matt Kinsella at McGill, like his group has done some stuff about like how you should characterize like the rheology and like the printing and like the printing speed and things like that. Um, and I think just some of that stuff will get standardized, but yeah, a lot of it's, you know, just because the field's so new um, and a lot of the initial materials people use, like alginate's very easy to print, but stem cells don't really like to grow on it. So, um, bad. yeah, so, um, but I understand why a lot of people use alginate, but like, that's why some of our work has been really unique is because we've actually been able to print and, and keep 
brain tissue alive and get functionality. Um, but it really, we do have people from the whole spectrum of engineering in my group. So. But I know that you have a new material that cells like to grow on. You want to share a little bit? Yeah. Um, so yeah, our material is based off of um, uh, fibrin, which is essentially one of the proteins found in blood. And we've spent a lot of time, my team has spent a lot of time optimizing it. And we're, we've, um, we've spun off a company called Axolotl Biosciences, which we hope to uh, be selling BioInc by the end of the year. Obviously, Corona's put <laughs> um, sort of a, a wrench in the plans for now, but I think we'll be able to figure some stuff out and uh, get back yeah. to our original <laughs> science <laughs> soon. Yeah, and you know, I also look forward to you pitch uh, at our pitch, uh, pitch 3D event during uh, 3D Hills 2020, in addition to your presentations yeah. on your work uh, itself. So I'm very much looking for it. I'm always, uh, I always like to see professors turn into entrepreneur. And I mean, you're in a very good position. Um, so are you, is this company run by your, uh, your student uh, as a CEO or how, tell a little bit more. Yeah, so currently I'm the CEO and then um, Laura De La Vega, who is my rock star PhD student, she's CSO. And we have, um, Lila Abelseth, who did a lot of the work helping to develop the formulation. She uh, both works for me at the University of Victoria and she also is a co-founder as well. Um, I think we incorporated, although the corona has made me lose track of days, um, we incorporated in March and we have a production manager and we have, uh, we had a full-time business co-op in spring. In the summer, we're gonna probably have four full-time co-ops um, as well to sort of, uh, get things off the ground. The um, initial goal was to hopefully list a package and ship by summer, but that would, was uh, without my, my lab shutting down. And we have a good deal. So with the university, we can actually rent my research lab space to the company to do our production runs. And so, yeah, um, and Josh, who was our business co-op in spring and he'll be continuing on summer. He's, uh, he's made our website and got us up on social media and stuff. So yeah, cool. it's, yeah, it's a, kind of a crazy time to uh, be starting a company. Yeah, but, there are a lot of really good unicorn companies came out of the 2009 crisis, for example. So yeah. as long as, as you have, you know, a really good business strategy and you have a really amazing product, it, it will survive. And yeah, 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 well, I mean, yeah there's also um, uh, some really interesting things coming out now about the effects of the coronavirus on the nervous system. So that's yeah, I'm ask you about that. Yeah, um, so they think it's, it, it can infect um, human neurons, and there's some evidence that it might be transmitted via the synapses, which is crazy, but interesting. That is crazy, yeah. So uh, we're hoping to um, put in some grants, um, and actually uh, the company also had submitted, we've submitted a pitch to the government of Canada on this, being able to use our neural tissue models to trace, um, to study uh, the infection, because after... Um, although we've been pretty lucky in British Columbia where we haven't hit uh, the overwhelming stage yet, it, um, after this initial wave, you're going to be dealing with the people who've recovered. And uh, what they've seen is there's been a lot of people who post-infection uh, have epilepsy. And so there's clearly a neurological yeah. component that's going on. Yeah, I've seen some MRI study um, after the coronavirus infection, and people cannot differentiate from the actual virus infection versus some kind of secondary effect from cytokine storm and everything else. Yeah. So, and you know, it's not like the first time virus infect brain. 
And but I think this whole coronavirus situation finally is putting a spotlight on how virus affect human body, like not just the lungs, but every single human body organs. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that there's been some, um, I think Joseph Penninger's group out of UBC, he's got some different organoids showing how the virus affects these different organoids. So it's, it's definitely uh, infecting a lot of things, but obviously the thing most people focus on initially is, is the, the lungs because that's where it's going in and infecting and spreading. I think what the other interesting opportunity could be is that we can use some of the tissues that your lab is producing and maybe other labs are producing as a drug screening tool for the coronavirus drug development. I mean, if we want to speed this up, what else, what other tools do we have that we haven't used? Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think they just, uh, I think GlaxoSmithKline just put out the preprint with um, making the pseudotyped uh, virus. So that's, um, it infects but doesn't spread. It infects but doesn't replicate. So you can use it in a BSL-2 lab because one of the, the issues is, um, finding like BSL-3 space. Like at the University of Victoria, we don't currently have um, BSL-3 space for working with live corona. Um, and so the fact that we now have, you can actually make a, you have the pseudotype, which is uh, a lower level as BSL-2. I think it'll open up a lot of studies for now um, as you know, universities slowly get back to doing research again. Yeah, so, so I mean, we definitely have a lot of opportunities here using bioprinting to advance science and pharmaceutical research. Um, I'm going to wrap it up a little bit with a fun question. Sure. Um, uh, you said you are a fan of Kansas football team. Yeah, the Kansas City Chiefs. I'm the from Chief. Missouri. Yeah. Are you from Kansas? I'm from Missouri. Kansas City is in Missouri. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Despite what Donald Trump says, um, the, the <laughs> baseball team and football team are, are there. So, yeah, I was very excited they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> okay. So, I, I admit I'm not a, a super sports fan, but... Congratulations. And that solves the mystery in my head is, you know, you're in, you know, British Columbia for so long, right? Almost how many years you've been there? Years now. I know. And before I was in uh, the Bay Area for my postdoc. I know. I thought that you were in UC Berkeley. So yeah, you know, it sounds like you, you were all over the place and congratulations again for all your achievement and very much looking forward to your presentation in a month. Yeah. Well, it's good chatting with you.